and welcome to Rising. It is great to be back with you all. I want to thank the guest hosts who filled in for me while I was on vacation, and Brianna, of course, for holding down the <laughs> fort in my absence. Everything went smoothly? Everything went smoothly, Robbie, but it's very good to see you back in the chair. Well, I missed you as well. Yeah, you were, you were very missed, especially given the news week that we have ahead of us. I know. I wish we had uh, happier subjects to, uh, to turn to, but it's going to be a lot of guests today and a lot of discussion about the ongoing uh, violence in Israel. So let's dive right into that. Uh, we want to talk, of course, about this conflict that broke out over the weekend. Brianna, take it away. Yeah, well, so as most of you are probably aware by now, starting on Saturday, the Palestinian group Hamas carried out an attack on Israel in one of the most broad uh, attacks of its kind in 50 years. Here's what we know so far. Hamas militants escaped from the Gaza Strip, overcame security barriers, and entered nearby Israeli towns. The result was the death of hundreds and the abduction of additional individuals, American citizens included. This operation has been reportedly celebrated by Hamas under the name Al-Asqa Storm. Here you can see on the screen where Hamas rockets hit Israeli towns. The Israeli foreign ministry said on Sunday night 700 Israelis had been killed in those attacks and an additional 2,243 were injured, according to the health ministry's latest data. The assault, conducted by land, sea and air, prompted Israel to respond with heavy strikes on Gaza cities, which continued into Sunday. So far, 413 Palestinians killed in these strikes. That includes 78 children, and 2,300 others have been wounded. That's according to information from the Palestinian ministry in Gaza. Now, according to The New York Times, Hamas has taken up to 150 hostages into Gaza to use as bargaining chips. These are mostly civilians, including elderly Holocaust survivors among those numbers. The total death toll, of course, expected to rise as we get more information. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared the attacks an act of war. Let's watch what he had to say. Citizens of Israel, we are at war, not in an operation or in rounds, but at war. This morning, Hamas launched a murderous surprise attack against the state of Israel and its citizens. We have been in this since the early morning hours. I convened the heads of security establishment and ordered, first of all, to clear out the communities that have been infiltrated by terrorists. This currently is being carried out. At the same time, I have ordered an extensive mobilization of reserves and that we return fire of a magnitude that the enemy has not known. The enemy will pay an unprecedented price. In the meantime, I call on the citizens of Israel to strictly adhere to the directives of the IDF and Home Front Command. We are at war and we will win it. And President Joe Biden shored up the U.S.'s support for Israel. When I spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu this morning, I told him the United States stands with the people of Israel in the face of these terrorist assaults. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people, full stop. There's never justification for terrorist attacks. And my administration's support for Israel's security is rock solid and unwavering. This is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. The world is watching. 
Biden has reportedly promised the Israeli prime minister that military assistance is on its way. According to The New York Times, a Hamas spokesman criticized the Biden administration's announcement of further military support for Israel as, quote, active participation in the aggression against our people. Here to help us break down the situation further is The Hill's national security reporter, Brad Dress. Welcome, Brad. We're now on day three of this hey. conflict. Uh, fill us in on the latest news. Yeah, so this this morning, um, Israel said it's going to launch um, a, a bigger attack into uh, Gaza. It's the Israel Defense Ministry said they have mostly reclaimed um, the communities and towns along the border near Gaza, and um, now they're looking to launch a major counteroffensive um, into Gaza to take out Hamas, clear out more terrorist groups. Um, and uh, hopefully put, put a stop to uh, this unprecedented attack. Um, now, fighting is still reportedly is still reportedly ongoing in Israel. They haven't fully um, stamped anything out yet. Um, Hamas is also still launching rocket attacks. So this is very much still real. It's still happening. Um, but Israel is now moving to... Um, in the next few days to uh, try to crack down much harder on Gaza and Hamas. We're looking at some footage of an apartment building that uh, is in the Gaza Strip that Israel bombed after telling people to evacuate. I believe it was, if not the largest, one of the largest um, residential buildings uh, in Gaza. Of course, the backdrop of this escalation is that the people in the Gaza Strip have been living in conditions that have been described as former Israeli military officials as an open-air prison under uh, what is also, have also been described as apartheid conditions. Two million people in a very small square uh, footage of area who are regularly subjected to their water being shut off, power being shut off. These are conditions that have been exacerbated, obviously, since the conflict emerged. As we just heard from Benjamin Netanyahu, his response is to, quote, take mighty vengeance against the Palestinians, calling Gaza a city of evil and saying it should be uh, turned into, quote, a city of ruins. How should people understand the precipitating events that led to this crisis? Yeah, so this, it's important to understand the context in this. This goes back, you know, decades, really, um, back to the creation of Israel um, as a state in 1948, shortly after World War II. Um, and the creation of Israel really displaced a lot of Palestinians. And, um, you know, their violence has just broken out between Israel and Palestine uh, ever since ever since the creation of Israel. And, um, and other Arab nations as well, or uh, Islamic-majority uh, nations. Um, but specifically between Palestine and Israel, it's just been a horrific uh, cycle of violence uh, for decades. And a lot of um, Palestinians now, they live in Gaza or the West Bank. Um, the West Bank is occupied by Israel. Gaza is ruled by Hamas, but Israel effectively has a blockade around it. And um, a lot of Palestinians view themselves as oppressed by the Israeli state. Um, and Netanyahu has a very far-right government that came into power. And um, he has he's, he's, uh, enacted some policies that they disagree with, um, that they view as even more oppressive, such as expanding um, settlements, Israeli settlements into the West Bank. Um, there's also been a lot of, like, 
tensions around holy sites. Um, Israeli settlers appear to be going um, into some of these holy sites, like the al Mosque, and um, in Palestinians view that as um, uh, sacrilege, essentially, against uh, one of their most holy sites. So the violence has uh, just, it's, it's simmered for so many years, and um, I think a lot of Palestinians are, are upset with that, um, and that I think that speaks to like what they what they want to how they want to interact with um, Israel, but yeah, um, it remains to be seen what what goes from here. Um, is there are there criticisms? Uh, is Netanyahu and his government facing you know serious questions about intelligence failures, uh, the you know lack of knowledge that this was about to happen, being totally taken by surprise, um, that sort of thing, or is or you know is is because the attack has happened, the government of Israel is experiencing the kind of rally around the flag effect, um, you know where everybody's in their corner. Uh, but are there going to be pointed questions about how this could have happened? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, it is. It was an unprecedented attack from Hamas. We have not seen anything like this actually since the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which saw um, Arab majority states um, led by Egypt and Israel invade and attack Israel. So this is their worst um, attack on Israel's in like 50 years, um, and actually it came a day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Um, which may have been coordinated on, on uh, purpose. Um, so this is honestly, a lot of people have been saying this is sort of like Israel's 9-11, you know, uh, at least 700 dead, thousands more wounded. Um, it's been a horrific, horrific attack in Israel. Um, and it's not clear how Hamas, which is a much smaller uh, militant group that rules Gaza, how they were able to organize an attack like this on this scale. And, um, and how Israel did not anticipate or see this. Um, you know, Israel is one of the, the biggest uh, armies in the, in the Middle East, and um, they also work very closely with the U.S., and it seems like both the U.S. and Israel completely um, missed any warning signs of this attack. And, um, you know, it's it, Palestinians were paragliding into across the border, um, sending in motorcycles, you know, they storming so many communities in uh, southern Israel. I mean, Israel was caught, caught completely um, by surprise, and um, you know, it's not it's not clear yet why, you know, the the how the Israel and the U.S. did not see this coming. There have been some reports that Iran was training a lot of these Hamas militants and preparing for this attack, although. We, uh, we don't know anything that's confirmed about Iran, but hmm. no confirmed details. But it's suspected that this was in preparation for a long time. Hmm. Brad, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And we'll be discussing about uh, discussing this further with a lot more guests um, today. Uh, you know, more background that we haven't gone into yet. Obviously, Israel and uh, the Saudis were engaged in some form of negotiation. So I've seen a lot of speculation that if the the ultimate goal of this um, attack is to Hamas 
interrupts that process because Israel then retaliates and makes it more difficult for um, uh, for uh, Muslim population countries like Saudi Arabia to engage in that sort of negotiation. You know, given what is like what has already been the scale of the Israel response and is you know likely to continue to be, um, you know, putting pushing the region toward more conflict and violence from all sides, um, a very sad outcome. Yeah, I mean, I do think the, the central tension here that's dividing how people are coming to this conflict is whether or not you see this, and much like the Ukraine crisis, as something that was an unprovoked invasion. So some people are drawing an analogy between and using the word unprovoked the same way they did with um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, ignoring the warnings about NATO expansion, et cetera. And similarly, you saw a uh, a whole glut of uh, articles when the conflict emerged on Saturday describing the uh, Palestinian, the Hamas attack as unprovoked, which is even more, I think, kind of striking uh, of a, a characterization when we're talking about an occupied territory. This is not disputed. And people who are living in the conditions, prison conditions, there has been discourse about how they need to evacuate, they have to go elsewhere, but the elsewhere is where exactly when you're literally in contained conditions, and that's part of why we are in the situation. They're in the situation where they felt the need to fight back in this way. People have also pointed to a number of nonviolent demonstrations that have happened um, by Palestinians that were met with violence um, from the side of Israel, including shooting at the nonviolent protesters who were walking along um, the border wall, hitting people in the, in the knees and legs as they shot at their feet. And people are wondering if the nonviolence is not allowed, if nonviolent movements like BDS, boycott, sanction uh, movement, are also characterized as hateful and terroristic and violent, then what is left for the Palestinian people who do, under international law, as oppressed, uh, as um, occupied people, have a right to defend themselves as well? So this is a very sensitive issue. Obviously, the implication of civilians in this makes it dark and ugly and very difficult to talk about. But there is also a certain asymmetry that's being reflected in the media. It, that also ignores the numbers of Palestinians, including Palestinian children, who have been killed long before this process, hundreds even uh, already in the course of the last year or so, that don't get the same treatment that the tragedy of Israeli lives that are being lost right now is getting in the media. So all of this is causing tempers to really flare and for, I think, really even-minded coverage like the ones that like we're handling right now, really, really important. So I look forward to continuing with this the rest sure. of the day. More rising right after this. Israel unleashed a barrage of counterstrikes against Gaza as the attacks continue for a third day following the surprise assault by Hamas, uh, a Palestinian militant group. Secretary of State Antony Blinken outlined two directions in which this latest conflict can take. Let's watch. There are really two paths for the, uh, for the region. Uh, one is a path of uh, much greater integration, much greater stability, and a resolution of um, the challenges uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, including equal measures of democracy, of opportunity, of justice uh, and dignity for both Israelis and Palestinians, or the path that Hamas is engaged in, a path of terror, of wreaking havoc in people's lives. Speaking to CNN's Christian Amanpour on Sunday, Palestinian National Initiative leader Mustafa Barghouz said he does not believe Hamas is to blame for the unrest, pointing to Israeli settlers in the West Bank instead. 
I think this situation uh, that has evolved is a direct result of the continuation of the longest occupation in modern history. Israeli occupation of Palestinian land since uh, 1967. This is 56 years of occupation that has transformed into a system of apartheid. Meanwhile, according to the Wall Street Journal, Hamas said Iran supported its attacks on Israel and former vice president and GOP presidential candidate Mike Pence blasted President Biden's strategy with Iran, specifically pointing to the recent U.S.-Iran hostage exchange and unfreezing of $6 billion of Iranian funding, claiming that this, quote, set the conditions for Hamas's attack on Saturday. Blink this notion. Let's watch. No U.S. taxpayer dollars were involved. These were Iranian resources. Uh, that uh, Iran had accumulated from the sale of its oil uh, that were stuck in a bank in South Korea. They have had from day one, under our law, under our sanctions, the right to use these monies for humanitarian purposes. They were moved from one account uh, to another in another country to facilitate that use. As of now, not a single uh, uh, dollar has been spent uh, from that account. And again, uh, the account is closely regulated by the U.S. Treasury Department, so it can only be used for things like food, medicine, uh, medical equipment. That's what this is about. Here to help break down the conflict is Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and Stephen David, professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Parsi, I'll come to you first. Um, we heard Antony Blinken talking there of uh, uh, two paths that could be taken, one of them a path of more integration in, uh, of Palestinians and Israelis. How sanguine a view is that, given that groups like Amnesty International have characterized Israel as an apartheid state because of its unwillingness to have a kind of equal treatment of Israel Israelis and Palestinians within the state of Israel? Well, I think you put your finger on it in the sense that that is the problem of this very simplistic view of two paths. Even when if one wants to reduce it to two paths, reality is that what the Biden administration has pursued with the Saudi-Israeli normalization would not bring about what he called for, that equality of the two-state solutions. The Palestinians, for instance, requested that as part of that normalization deal, there would be uh, a UN recognition of a Palestinian state, and the Biden administration flat out rejected it. So uh, it's another effort that unfortunately seems to be cementing uh, an occupation um, that uh, will continue to bring out about a tremendous amount of instability and suffering, both for Palestinians and for Israelis. So the path he's talking about in some ways is the right path, but it's not the path that the Biden administration has chosen. Professor David, what do you make of this idea that, um, you know, the funds returned to Iran, fine, not being used specifically for this cause, but of course money is fungible. So does that, does that make sense, the idea that we can say, well, it did not, none of that funding was involved in the attacks, given, you know, whatever they spend that on, then the money that they would have allocated if they were involved in training or supplying, that's, you know, money that could be spent on that. It doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't matter if specifically that fund is not used. I think the funding is a side issue. Uh, that's not the crux of the matter, or whether this money was released to Iran or not, uh, was not central to what happened on October 6th. And I think we have to be clear here. The issue is not Israeli policy, Israeli occupation, uh, or anything that Israel has done. What we have seen 
uh, is roughly a thousand Hamas terrorists, not militants, terrorists, go into Israeli homes, murder civilians, as many as they can, rip children from their beds, put them in cages, and take them uh, into Gaza. Uh, this is a barbaric atrocity uh, that cannot be explained uh, by looking at what Israel does or doesn't do. Uh, and, and it needs to be condemned by all well-meaning people throughout the world. Uh, there's going to be a massive retribution. And I must say, it, it pains me to think of the innocent Palestinians who will be hurt and killed as uh, part of this retribution. But the blood on the hands rests with the Hamas leadership and probably Iran, uh, who met with the Hamas leadership as well as Hezbollah shortly before this attack. And let's not kid ourselves. Hamas could not exist without direct Iranian support. And if nothing else, this has shown the nature of the Iranian regime. Uh, Khamenei's tweet, uh, celebrate, uh, the leader of Iran celebrating this attack, uh, posting a video where 260 innocent civilians were murdered at a dance festival. Uh, this goes beyond the bounds of any sense of norms of international conduct. And I, for one, have lost patience with this on the one hand. On the other hand, both sideism, this is barbarism, plain and simple. Professor David, it's interesting to me that you brought up the specific example of the kids in cages, because that has now, this, this specific image in, I think, short video clip that has been circulating, has now been fact-checked as actually Palestinian children in cages. And many people have noted that certain celebrities and other public figures who posted that image in disgust when they believed it was Israeli children in the cages seemed to have very little to say once it was fact-checked and revealed to be the conditions that Palestinians have been living in long before the violence that emerged over the weekend erupted. So what do you say to folks that this is emblematic of the imbalance in media coverage and the ignoring, basically, of the longstanding conditions that Palestinians have been under? And push back when you say, well, this isn't about the occupation of Palestine. This isn't about the conditions of Palestine. When, given the media framing that you've just discussed, and given um, the violence that has been done to Palestinians in a normal course of action, and given the statements from Hamas as to why they have engaged in this way violently, that is exactly Hamas, what it's all about. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Uh, it's not just me saying this. It's not just Israel saying this. It's the European community saying this. It's the United States saying this. There is no question that over 100 Israelis how were ripped from their homes and are now prisoners in Gaza. How can that be justified? Um, if uh, Hamas militants ran, went into your home and took your members of your family and put them in who knows where, how, how, how can this be justified? There are many of us, including myself, who have grave problems with many Israeli policies, including the occupation. But in no way, and we have to begin with this, in no way does this justify the barbaric act that was committed. Moreover, what does the Hamas leadership expect after doing some, something like this? It expects a massive Israeli retaliation, which shows that the Hamas leadership doesn't give one a whit of care about the people under its rule. Mm. Dr. Parsi, you know, what is the reality now for uh, peace talks between Israel and Muslim countries? Uh, obviously, they were 
in conversation with Saudi Arabia, the retaliatory actions Israel is taking, you know, whether one agrees with them or not, are going to make it harder for countries like Saudi Arabia to negotiate. Um, I presume, and many national security experts are suggesting that that is the ultimate goal of Hamas, to, to delegitimize those conversations. Um, what will it take to, to keep people at the table working toward peace in good faith, given the reality of everything going on? Well, I, I think the premise of the question that that agreement would bring about peace, I'm not buying into that, because we saw the Abraham Accord with several normalizations uh, between countries that were not at war with Israel. And all it did is that it pushed the Palestinian issue to the side. Uh, and even though Europe, the United States, many Arab regimes may have forgotten the Palestinians, clearly the Palestinians had not forgotten the Palestinians. So it bounced back in a horrific, horrific way. So on the premise of it, I, I, I don't know if I completely agree with uh, uh, the f way that you phrased the question, but as to the question of what happens now, I think that deal had significant problems to begin with. Those problems have grown tremendously over the weekend. The Saudi statement uh, in regards to uh, the Hamas attacks uh, echoed essentially what both Qatar and Iran were saying, in which that they um, uh, pointed to uh, the occupation as a root cause of this. Uh, the Saudis are probably going to have a higher price now um, to pursue this path further at a time when which the Israeli political establishment and society as a whole will have no appetite whatsoever to give any concessions to the Palestinians. So at least in the short term, it seems to uh, be uh, have taken a major blow. But it also points to a, a fundamental premise of this issue, which was the belief that there could be an agreement that could be found that essentially, as Jared Kushner phrased it, moved beyond the Palestinian issue. I think what well, the horrific events of this past weekend shows that that is a very, very dangerous calculation. That the belief that an occupation simply can be managed, there may be some problems every once in a while, but nothing significant, uh, is not tenable. And, and people are dying on both sides as a result of it. So not only is it a short-term political blow, but I think also that it may raise question marks as to whether the premise of that approach, uh, which was designed to move beyond the Palestinian issue, is one that actually can be pursued in the future. Dr. Parsi, one of the um, preceding realities to this conflict is that the idea of a two-state solution has become a fantasy to many folks as the um, encroachments uh, by Israel into what was once Palestinian uh, land and homes. There was an allusion earlier to someone coming into your home and kidnapping you and taking you hostage and the like. But I do think it's worth noting the extent to which so many Palestinians have been displaced from their homes and feel like they are, in fact, endeavoring to reclaim what was once theirs. Um, that because there have been so many uh, encroachments, that the idea of a conti contiguous two-state kind of a solution has largely fallen by the wayside. And to that end, it, people have been noting that it is settled law in the international humanitarian legal community that wars of national li liberation, um, according to the Geneva Convention, people can protect themselves with uh, armed conflict in order to uh, resist colonial occupation. You know, at what point is 
this situation rightly characterized as people resisting an armed occupation and con consistent with international law, as opposed to uh, the way that Professor David uh, characterized it uh, as a um, militant terrorist action? Well, on the one hand, yes, armed struggle and resistance against occupation is permitted by international law. In fact, take a look at how Western countries are uh, addressing Russia's uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine. It's very clear that there is a strong belief that Ukraine has a right to defend itself. But on the other hand, it does not mean that other parts of international law are not also bounding those who resort to violence, which is uh, uh, making sure that they're not engaging in war crimes, not attacking civilians, etc., etc. On that score, I don't think Hamas holds up particularly well at all because this is targeting civilians, etc. But on the broader issue again of this, the belief that one can uh, manage an occupation of another people in the long run and that it will not lead to blow-ups of violence, I think is an extremely dangerous belief that will bring about no security for Israel, no security for the Palestinians. I think there was a belief in the uh, last decade that as a result of the Arab Spring and Arab countries turning inwards because of their own internal problems that everyone essentially had forgotten the Palestinians. And as a result, as long as there were no external countries supporting the Palestinians, the issue would either go away or would be managed. I think that again was a very, very dangerous and problematic belief because even without the support of uh, Iran, and I think uh, um, um, Professor David is correct that the Iranians have been providing uh, weapons and technological support to Hamas, whether they have been involved in the operational element of this attack, I think is a very different question. And I questioned the Wall Street Journal report on that. But nevertheless, even if they were not doing so, I think, again, it's dangerous to believe that an occupation can go on for decades and decades without it leading to horrific results for both sides. Professor David, want to give you uh, the last word. Obviously, we're seeing um, a, the Israeli government undertaking uh, retaliatory efforts to root out Hamas, getting, <clears throat> excuse me, getting uh, a lot of verbal support from uh, Western leaders, from U.S. leaders, um, talks of uh, aid packages underway. I think the Pentagon's already uh, committed to sending money. What is, uh, what do you make of the response you're seeing, and, and how do you think um, the Israeli government um, should handle this moving forward, including questions I'm sure uh, Benjamin Yannahu is going to have to face about intelligence failures that allowed this to occur? Well, well, let me just say, uh, just take a step back and, and remind you and your, uh, your co-host that the Palestinians have been offered a state on several different occasions, uh, beginning in 1947 with the UN resolution. Um, it has repeatedly turned down uh, an offer of a two-state solution and instead is engaged in terrorism, which has left the Palestinians in a horrible plight. And the efforts to justify uh, this barbaric act uh, that your co-host Brianna seemed to put forth, uh, to me, is just uh, uh, intolerable. That said, yes, there will be a lot of soul-searching in Israel as to how the surprise attack was allowed to do the damage it did. Um, and we, um, so far, the international community has stood by Israel. Whether that will continue uh, over the long term uh, remains to be seen. But Israel, fortunately, has a strong ally in the United States and in the Western world. 
Israel is strong itself, Israel will prevail. Uh, uh, and uh, I grieve for the innocent Palestinians who are going to be hurt and killed as a result of this barbaric act. But as I said before, the blood uh, of those innocents belong to the Hamas leadership and those who support them. I certainly agree, Professor David, that um, Israel putting those Palestinian children in cages was barbarism, and I'm happy to call out barbarism on both sides uh, when I see it. Thank you both for joining uh, us well, today. Well, 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 you know what? Not every issue is totally even-sided, and I, I really wish you had uh, a bit more objectivity uh, as a journalist, because I certainly And I, and I, wish, I wish that the broader scope of journalism that we've seen over the last 50 years of this conflict had been more balanced in a way that perhaps would have prevented us from getting into the conflict and the violence that we saw emerge over the weekend. Unfortunately, I think the longstanding concerns of Palestinians have been ignored and, in fact, exacerbated by contributions from the U.S. government and military funding. And that is, in fact, the precondition, I think, that Dr. Parsi is speaking to, which, unfortunately, is leading to all of this bloodshed on both sides that is, of course, enormously regrettable and tragic. But I appreciate well, maybe, it, maybe at some point you'll realize that the Palestinians bear some responsibility for their plight. I hope you do in some, uh, at some time. And I hope, I hope at some time you'll acknowledge that the Israeli government, which is an occupying force over a people that existed in that territory for a very long time, bear responsibility for displacing people from their homes, placing them in an open-air prison, and putting them in conditions which has been described by Israeli officials and uh, groups uh, like I, that. I, I, have on, I, have on I have on numerous occasions, publicly or not, criticize the Israeli government. Sounds I don't like know if the same, same could be said. I, I appreciate you both for joining us. Regarding the Palestinians. I, I appreciate you both for joining us. Thank you very much. The United States House of Representatives prepares to pick its next leader this week as Israel seems prepared to go to war against Palestine after Hamas launched a surprise attack on the country over the weekend. The fighting in the Middle East is increasing pressures on American lawmakers to select a new speaker. This week, as questions about what the House can do to aid and support Israel without a speaker in place loom large, The Hill reports. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall stressed the importance of electing a speaker in order to replenish funding for Israel. He said, quote, we have to get a speaker elected this week so we can get things on the floor, like replenishing the Iron Dome, get a resolution that Ranking Member Gregory Meeks and I have been working on, a bipartisan resolution condemning Hamas for what they have done to Israel. Amidst this race for Speaker, Representative Nancy Mace weighed in on past sexual assault allegations that Jim Jordan has faced from Ohio State University and how this might affect her view of him as he vies for the speakership. I know you've been outspoken about um, defending victims of sexual assault through the past allegations against Jim Jordan mm -hmm. that he turned a blind eye to sexual abuse. Give you any reservations? I, yeah, I'm not a familiar or that? aware with that. I, he's not indicted on anything that I'm aware of, and so I don't, I don't know anything and can't speak to that. But I will it's say the Ohio that Ohio State been, University said, allegations. Margaret, a very, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything, and I, I don't know anything about that. What I do know is that I've been a very strong voice for women. I've talked to Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise about that. I've been a very strong advocate for rape victims, as you mentioned earlier. The Judiciary Committee, as with him as chairman, recently passed a rape kit bill that Barbara Lee and I are working on. And those are the facts and the data that I have to work with, and I've had a very positive experience with him in that regard. 
the Hills. Michael Chanel joins us now to weigh in on all of this. Welcome, Michael. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this obviously, this conflict that has emerged over the weekend puts pressure on uh, the House Republicans to come to some resolution over the speakership battle. But just because more pressure looms large doesn't necessarily mean anything has really changed on the ground. What's your sense of the likelihood of getting a replacement to McCarthy this week? Yeah, look, you put it like that exactly. So while the pressure may be increasing and while lawmakers may hope to come to some sort of resolution when it comes to filling the role of speaker this week, they may hope that. But the reality in Washington is oftentimes that things move slower than expected. Uh, so that may not come to fruition. So there were a few lawmakers on the Sunday show circuit yesterday saying that they were hopeful that the process would not take very long, that they wanted to move through this quickly. People like Congressman Matt Gates, Congressman Byron Donalds. But the reality of it is, is that neither candidate currently running for speaker, Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan, neither of them have a clear path to winning the gavel. Uh, they both received a number of endorsements from different lawmakers. But still, because of that split support among the conference, neither one right now has a clear path to winning. So with that reality, it is possible that we will see the Republican conference take maybe a few days to come to some sort of consensus. Uh, current conference will say that just the individual who has a majority of support within the conference moves on to the House floor with that uh, nomination. Some lawmakers are pushing to change conference rules to say that you have to have at least a majority of the chamber, which in this case would be 217 votes within the Republican conference before moving to the floor. That, of course, would prevent that multi-ballot race that we saw happen back in January. It would essentially put this last minute wrangling, keep it behind closed doors with the conference. Whether or not that will end up happening and be reality remains to be seen. But yeah, look, there are still disagreements within the conference about who the next speaker should be, regardless of the situation in Israel. However, I will say that lawmakers do want to move quickly through it because of that situation, whether or not we'll, they'll actually be able to, well, we'll have to see that in the coming days. Right. Many lawmakers clearly want to move uh, quickly, some, you know, in the Republican uh, Party. But of course, you know, we can't overlook that part of McCarthy's downfall, right, was because Matt Gates had issues with the prioritization of funding for um, Ukraine. So it's interesting now that the, the idea we would need to come together and have a new speaker so that they could quickly prioritize funding for Israel, um, I, I'm sure that's going to rub, I think that's going to rub some Republicans the wrong way, although maybe they, maybe Republican primary viewers, some, viewers, some of them, uh, see these two things differently, see, you know, don't, are suspicious of funding Ukraine and not of, of Israel. Um, are we seeing, you know, the Matt Gateses of the world um, uh, having a, a kind of policy impact on this discussion for, for what commitments, whether it's Jordan or Scalise, are, are going to have to, to Gates and to Republican primary voters? So I haven't exactly seen that yet. And by and large, we've seen uh, we've seen lawmakers of all stripes, Democrats and Republicans, say that the U.S. needs to continue to support you uh, to support Israel, send it as much aid as it needs, stick by its side. Of course, Israel, one of the U.S.'s closest allies. So I haven't seen yet those that discrepancy about, you know, that that maybe skepti skepticism about this foreign aid. But, you know, you, you bring up 
sort of the side by side when you have aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel now with the situation that's developing in the Middle East. I will note that, you know, of course, Israel is one of the U.S.'s closest allies. And historically speaking, particularly Republicans have been very pro-Israel, very supportive of supporting Israel. So I suspect that we'll see that continue in the in the wake of this most recent conflict in the Middle East. And then when you talk about Ukraine, that is sort of on its own footing these days. Of course, the topic of aid to Ukraine has become this hot button lightning rod issue within the Republican conference, really bitterly dividing the Republican Party at large, to be quite honest. A number of lawmakers increasingly skeptical of sending more aid to Ukraine. We saw that vote just last month where more Republicans actually voted against sending more aid to Ukraine rather than, you know, than than in favor of it. So I think when you when you set these two issues, aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel side by side, they do bear some similarities, of course, both aid to foreign countries. But I think that, you know, Republicans are likely going to stand by Israel and, and continue to send aid and support for as long as it's needed because of that historic nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship, while something like Ukraine, that has sort of developed into this hot-button issue that's really bitterly divided the Republican conference. Hey, Michael, I take your point about the historic nature of the relationship, and certainly every establishment politician has echoed that line since the fighting started over the weekend. But it's also true that trends have been shifting pretty radically on this. According to an Associated Press uh, Nork Center for Public Affairs research poll that came out just last month, about four in 10 Americans described Israel as a partner with which the U.S. should cooperate, but they also said the country does not share U.S. interests and values. Only about three in 10 said Israel is an ally that shares U.S. interests. Republicans, as you mentioned, are more likely than Democrats to call Israel an ally. Um, but in light of the $3 billion a year that Americans send to Israel, and given the nature of the critique that's being um, leveraged against the funding to Ukraine, which is why does the money flow out the door so easily to these international endeavors, but never domestically, it will be interesting to see if any of this gets implicated in the ongoing fight over the speakership race. What do you, what do you make, also, before you leave, of the uh, kind of— um, for lack of a better word, um, sex, sex scandal with respect to Jim Jordan. Do you think that's going to meaningfully uh, impact his chances? Are you seeing pattern of that outside of kind of the liberal sphere of that clip that we played earlier here? I don't think that we'll see that affect uh, the situation. Those allegations have, of course, been in the media and been in, in conversations for a while now. That's not something new. That's not a new revelation. Uh, it's 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 been in the conversations about Jim Jordan for years. I mean, since that's been known, so I don't see it having a particular impact on the speaker's race right now. Uh, yeah, I think that I, I don't see it, it having much, much of an influence. Mm. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, recently weighed in on the horrific situation overtaking the region. Let's watch. I think it scores of hostages. I can tell you there's also American hostages as part of that number as well. I don't want to get into a specific number, uh, but these are women, they're children, they're elderly, they're Holocaust survivors. This is sick. Israeli citizen, mother of three, Batsheva Gunut Iluz, joins us now from Israel to discuss what is happening there. You're in Tel Aviv, is that right? No, I'm actually in Maskeret Batya, which is a small village about 39 kilometers from the border with Gaza. Okay, can you describe what you're observing now? Absolutely. Um, 
at this moment, early Saturday morning, it started. We started with a barrage of missile and rocket fire at about 6.30 in the morning. Unfortunately, I was on a run before synagogue. So I was about eight kilometers away from home in the middle of open space with red alert sirens and missiles falling around me with three children home. Uh, so it was difficult to get back there safe and sound, but I did. And we spent the majority of that day get going in and out of our safe room, our bomb shelter, which is located, we're very lucky, in our home. Many people don't have shelters in their home and they need to leave and run for shelters that are public or you know not located so close to where they are. So we spent the day like that. And um, we've had less sirens over the past two days, but of course we've had, we've had the horrific stories that just continue to pour out of Southern Israel, you know, just about 30 minutes from where I live and it just really just keeps getting worse and worse. It's heartbreaking for yeah. everyone here and I think everyone around the world. Uh, what was the sign that it was safe to spend time outside of the bomb shelters again? We have really, um, they're very well prepared here with very clear instructions. So when there is a possibility that a missile can land somewhere near where you are, there is an air raid siren that goes off and that gives you a signal that you need to move to your bomb shelter. And depending on where you live, you have a specific amount of time to get there. So if you're on the border with Gaza, you might have less than five seconds, whereas I have about a minute. So that's a long time to gather yourself, your children, your pets and get them in the bomb shelter. And then you're requested to stay in for 10 minutes um, until after the siren stops. And then you're all clear to come out and you might go back and forth, you know, 15 times within an hour. Uh, we've seen a number of statements uh, about what the character of the response is going to be. Israeli Defense Minister uh, recently said, for example, um, I've, that he's ordered a quote, complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There'll be no electricity, no, fu no fuel, no food, everything is closed. Um, what do you make of the response? And are you concerned that more escalation is going to lead to more unstable conditions for residents of Israel? You know, I have to be honest with you. I think right now, most of the residents of Israel, I mean, all of our eyes are on the South and all of our eyes, you know, we have kidnapped, we have missing, we have wounded, we have bodies that haven't been collected. And I think that's where everybody's efforts and responses are going, how to end the gun battles that are happening now, how to regain control of the kibbutzim and the moshavim, the Israeli neighborhoods and small villages, and make sure, you know, it's house to house. It's make sure everyone's safe or make sure those who are not safe and who are no longer with us, that their bodies are collected and that they will be able to get proper burial. You know, this is a nation that's been striving for peace for so long. And what we're seeing today, you know, everyone's calling it a war, but it's, it's not a war. What we've seen in the past two and a half, three days already is it's a slaughterhouse, it's a massacre, it's mass executions, it's killing of children in front of their parents, killing of parents and kidnapping of children. Um, you know, I think my personal mind right now is a mother of, of, of three children who's trying to keep everyone safe and sane, which is another really big component to all of this and make sure that your children aren't scarred for the rest of their life is, um, how to get through the next hour and not looking so far forward at this point. Is there um, shock that this happened? Obviously, the region, Israel, is you know, no stranger to, um, to attacks, to conflict. Um, is there a sense that the government was unprepared, that, that, um, that the 
administration didn't know this was coming, the in intelligence failures occurring. Can you describe the kind of I, emotional mindset? I, I'm sure, I, know, I know it's it's just happened, and there's going to be time for that kind of yeah. processing to take place. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think there's two different feelings here. One is shock. And nobody thought that anything like this was possible and no one could imagine anything like this happening. So there's that element. And like you say, people are saying there'll be a time to investigate and figure out what went wrong. And even though Israel has taken a terrible hit, I mean, there's been nothing like this in the history of the country. We're talking about civilians and families and young children and elderly. I mean, who kidnaps an 85-year-old woman and babies without parents? I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy among tragedies, but at the same time, we also have an incredible resilience. I mean, what you see here are not people running away, but people running toward. I mean, we have our sons and our daughters and our neighbors and everyone in uniform flowing towards the danger zone to protect their families back at home in their country, flowing up north. And I think that the resilience of the civilians is unbelievable. You just have an outpouring. There's more volunteers the need for assistance. You know, I have my older children making food for soldiers, volunteering to clean public bomb shelters and stock them with water and snacks. You have people bringing to army bases what's needed for soldiers, people taking care of the elderly or of young mothers whose husbands have been called up. So what you have is an entire nation full of fortitude, full of resilience, and full of a will to live peacefully in this land. But so Sheva, it's kind of existing side by side. But Sheva, uh, how long have you lived in Israel? And can you give us a sense of uh, how it's changed and what you've experienced during your time there? Sure. Um, I'm actually from Baltimore, Maryland. I grew up uh, close by to where all of you are. And I moved here about 20 years ago. Um, I have lived in several different places. I've lived in small villages. I've lived in beautiful Tel Aviv by the beach. Um, and again, now I'm living in a smaller village in the South. And I think that the amount of resilience, I mean, when I moved here, buses were being bombed in Jerusalem. And, you know, we've been through issues, like you've said, Israel is no stranger to conflict. Unfortunately, no stranger to terrorism, definitely a stranger to massacres slaughterhouse and bloodbath, but not a stranger to wars, to conflict and to terrorism. And I think the country's always been resilient. I mean, everybody's watched as there's been internal disagreement among uh, different political parties and people in this country. But I think that kind of gets erased in an instant when you are, your survival's at stake. So I'm, I'm curious, as someone who is a relatively more recent newcomer to the country, what do you say to folks who might look at the ongoing displacement of Palestinians in the occupied territories that have been pointed to as a root cause of this conflict? Um, what do you say to people who might be some, somewhat sympathetic to that and unsympathetic to the idea that people should be able to participate in that displacement and to lay claim to land where Palestinians don't have equal rights under the law? Well, I, I mean, I, it's very difficult for me to answer the question. You know, I think we need to look at two different things. When Al-Qaeda bombed the World Trade Center in, in um, New York, sorry, the, the Twin Towers in New York where I was there, and right now what's happening in Israel really reminds me of the days after 
um, the, the Twin Towers fell. I mean, people walking around the streets, holding up notices of pictures of their missing relatives, you know, looking for any shred of information. Nobody, nobody called Al-Qaeda a militant group. And when ISIS uh, committed the terrible attacks that they did in Paris, nobody called them militants. And I think we need to have a really big separation here. Israel's entered into peace processes again and again with the Palestinian people. Israel has had, you know, look at the Oslo Accords, look at our prime minister that was murdered because of it. We have entered into so many processes and have been ready so many times to make peace. And I think to talk about or to even suggest any kind of the reason that this is happening and that we've dragged families out of their homes and gunned them down, mothers, fathers, young children, because of a political disagreement, it just, it doesn't work. Mm. You know, we've entered into peace process and we always try. And we, you know, people say there's never been in more of a nation who's missed opportunities to miss an opportunity. And I don't think that we can blame the situation that the Palestinians are under on the Israeli government. I think we have to look to their leaders first. Shiva, thank you for joining us and please stay safe. Okay, thank you very much. And let's all just hope for peace in this region and all over the world, everyone who needs it. Twenty twenty four presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. condemned Hamas's attacks against Israel. The insurgent candidate, who's gained support in part for his anti-war views, turned heads with a statement signaling the U.S. should help Israel defend itself, providing whatever aid they need. On Saturday, he took to Twitter, writing, quote, As president, I'll make sure that our policy is unambiguous so that the enemies of Israel will think long and hard before attempting aggression of any kind. Hmm. Political commentator and friend of the show, Sabrina Salvati, called out RFK Jr.'s apparent change of heart, responding on X, quote, I guess RFK Jr. won't run with the Libertarian Party. Mm. And, and in fact, she's not just referencing that abstractly, as you see in that tweet. The Libertarian Party responded with a pretty... Uh, pointed, harsh uh, rebuke of RFK Jr.'s stance there. On the other hand, independent candidate Cornell West did steadfastly for peace, writing on Twitter that if he were commander-in-chief, he would, quote, stop the killing of innocent people, be they Palestinians or Israelis, by calling for an end to the vicious U.S.-supported Israeli occupation. This violent resistance to oppression is the desperate language of an <laughs> occupied people, he wrote. As I have said for the past 50 years, a precious Palestinian child has the same value as a precious Israeli child. Yeah, going through all of these responses, so much of the discourse on Twitter, at least over the weekend, was people weighing in on who did a better or worse job of acknowledging the tragedy of the moment, acknowledging the value of the Israeli lives lost without that seeming to somehow invalidate or outweigh the ongoing conditions that Palestinians have been living under, which in the views of, I think, most people who are looking clear-eyed in a clear-eyed way at this crisis are, of course, the root causes of why this violence has emerged. Right. Um, so there are a number of things I wanted to say. So sure. I, I think you're right. I think it's correct to criticize the media, the mainstream media in general, for overlooking the plight of the Palestinians for not giving it the coverage it deserves. That's something we've tried to remedy on our own show time and time again. Um, there are uh, uh, the, the policies of Israel toward the Palestinians I don't agree with. And actually, even a lot of our the guests we've, we've had on 
uh, talking about the horrors Israel has faced during this attack, uh, agree with that as well. Now, I don't want that to be used as a way to invalidate the horror of what's happening to the people in Israel, you know, including um, people at a kind of music festival or something being taken prisoner, killed, possibly raped, their corpses dragged through the, the streets, the videos we're seeing. Totally horrible. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's absolutely correct con to condemn what's going on. Then, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. But honestly, rather than, like, litigating the Israeli-Palestinian um, struggle, dispute, battle, mutual hatred, um, is the, you know, is that— is it proper for the U.S. to put its thumbs on the, on the scales of that conflict one way or the other? And I think the clear answer to that is no. I think that's—I I think often the elites in both parties uh, miss— uh, don't understand that their actual voters, the actual people, don't want their money being sent into these fraught conflicts either way. And so it was disheartening for me to see so many, you know, political figures who identify themselves both as Republican, as Democrat, and as Independent, like RFK Jr., um, signaling—I mean, they, they want to— all the people complaining that we don't have a speaker and that's preventing us from spending from from sending more of our money more immediately to Israel is that actually what um, what what voters care about and want I, I don't think so so you know the same way you and I talk about Ukraine with with great sympathy for what the Ukrainian people are facing with, with great condemnation of the illegal actions of Russia but it does it serve US foreign policy interests to intervene and to prioritize uh, a fund of one side of that conflict, again, so many Republican primary voters and, and viewers and the, the common man saying, no, we don't want to do that. And I suspect that's going to be the case here as well. And Democratic, Republican elites and also independent candidates should—I'm I'm you know, no secret I'm a Libertarian Party voter. I think the statements they've put out so far have been very wise and, you know, warning people not to, uh, not to go against this—the an, anti-interventionist tide is meaningful, and it's because there's a lot of skepticism that our dollars spent over there, regardless of where the over there is— Make make us safer or make the conflict better. There's profound skepticism of that, and it is well justified skepticism. Yeah, I mean, what is it? Three billion dollars a year uh, as a routine course of action from the United States to Israel. Many on the left have, for years, been frustrated that uh, Israelis get universal health care, Americans don't. Um, there are. Uh, this is another example. It seems where there is a willingness to do. Uh, foreign spending in a way that there is not an appetite to do domestic spending. It is a, it's a bipartisan effort and a bipartisan interest. And it's something that, again, is framed as in the broader national interest of Americans um, to protect this, what's described as bastion of democracy in the Middle East. The problem is that that $3 billion a year is also funding and facilitating um, inhumane apartheid conditions for Palestinians, who I cannot describe as Palestinian citizens because they don't have that right. And part of the reason why Cori Bush's statement, I think, was considered to be one of the best of the leftists in Congress is because she does acknowledge, it, acknowledge that. In the second-to-last uh, sentence, she says, after, of course, speaking to the tragedy of the lives lost, both Israeli and Palestinian, says, as part of achieving a just and lasting peace, we must do our part to stop this violence and trauma by ending U.S. government support for Israeli military occupation and apartheid. I think that she was the only um, elected who has been willing to use the word apartheid. And I do think that there's a really short-sightedness here. If you 
if you condemn this violence as everybody should, if you condemn the murder of innocent civilians as everybody should, at a certain point you have to, to figure out what is going to lead people to no longer want to lash out in this way. What do you expect people who have, are living within policed borders, who are not allowed the free right of egress and ingress, who are, uh, the, you know, have their um, water and electricity, electricity supply completely controlled by Israel, aren't treated to the democratic process, mass unemployment, mass um, uh, uh, food insecurity and water insecurity and the like, to live in those conditions for what? For how many more generations? Some of the statements that we've seen reflect a, a, an acknowledgment, a recognition that this is an extreme uphill battle, the idea of a direct military conflict between Palestinians and Israelis as well-funded and technologically advanced as Israelis are, that it's an uphill battle that is unlikely to be successful and is, and is very likely, and we've seen this already, to bring down a hailstorm of horror on Palestinians. But right. if you feel like your backup is against the wall and the only alternative is to live successive generations in unsustainable, apartheid, inhumane conditions, then people are willing to take that chance. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I think we should be clear. I don't know that any— the, the range of options that I, the Israeli government could engage in, I, like Hamas, I, I, like I don't know that Hamas is going to stop targeting or attacking Israelis, regardless of what the situation is. Um, but that doesn't. But you know, my interest is what serves U.S. foreign policy. And the people in the past, the terrorist attacks against the U.S. have been in part justified, and and uh, the, the the terrorists justified and and garner support for it, give because of our policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel. Our again, our our endorsement and our funding toward Israel. So given that that doesn't, I don't actually think that suits our interests to be seen as antagonistic to. Um, to people in that corner of the world, and given that I don't think the American people support our money being spent there when there's all sorts of domestic issues going on, it seems like a no-brainer to me to not get um, additionally involved. I don't—now, without—again, I, I don't—I think the policies of the Israeli government toward the Palestinians has been—should be—can be criticized. Um, at the same time, of course, the terrorist attacks by— Palestinian radical groups in, that include abductions and and and, um, and rape and murder and parading uh, around it, social we, media. It's worth saying there's been no uh, no substantiated evidence of rape. Okay, it's pretty bad what I'm seeing. If that particular allegation doesn't pan out, fine. Um, but again, more, the the point is not for, from my standpoint. Maybe we disagree on this, but it's it's not. It's not, you know, what is what is going to um, about the actual conflict there. It's what business does the U.S. have in trying to solve? Like, does our money help solve it? Does us weighing in help fix the problem? There's, I see no evidence that we're making things better. And American people don't want to spend our money in foreign countries anyway. Why would we do that? Why is the entire political system rush? We're going to rush the race for the next Speaker of the House process? to make sure we can send more American dollars overseas. This is exactly why the elites are out of touch with the American people, that they don't understand at all what the people actually want. I, I do think that that's right. I would only add to that that our dollars, I think, are in fact fomenting 
this crisis, are exacerbating this crisis, because our American dollars are what enable the Israeli government, which is a right-wing, increasingly right-wing government, to act with impunity toward an occupied population that they have complete and total dominion over. Sure. I mean, I think a, <laughs> a blood feud between two groups of people who have been living on the same land, not just for decades, but actually for hundreds and thousands of years, um, can never like easily be solved, and there will uh, like over the accumulation of thousands of years, there's obviously going to be a lot of like wrongdoing on both sides, and it it's meant well. Are you accountable for what your immediate ancestors did versus your long ago ancestors? Well, this isn't. It, I mean, very... I think people want to turn this into this long ago thing, the way we talk about slavery. Like, why are you still complaining? It was 400 years ago, but it wasn't. These are people who are living human beings that can walk by and point to a house that they lived in, that their family grew up in, that they were displaced from, and that now an immigrant from Brooklyn or Baltimore or Germany now lives in and the, has legal right to for reasons. Right. And so that's the situation. I mean, I, that is the reality of the situation that we're in. Well, there are stories, I mean, in the last month, I've seen—we didn't necessarily cover them here—stories of the Israeli government choosing to poison whales, to further—wells, to further, further limit um, access to water, again, to be able to have control over what Palestinians do within the very narrow confines of the territory that they're now squatting in, in, in Gaza. The complete control—what does it say about the conditions and the rights and freedoms and self-determination that Palestinians have if, in the middle of this conflict, a million children are now without water and, and, and electricity because the Israeli government can decide to turn it off. Now, that's everybody living in Gaza who's down under those conditions. And you can say, well, this is the, if they didn't like it, they should have said something to Hamas. But if you believe that Hamas is a terrorist group and you believe that Hamas is, is also not an elected democratic party that is reflecting the interests or the choices of the innocent people that are living in Gaza, you also have to be serious about whether or not Israel's response, bombing that tall uh, residential building that we've seen played over and over again as we talk about this issue today, is a ethical and humanitarian response to what has, right, has happened. Every action, the issue, every action on both sides is a response to the other thing the other people did, going back all of human history. So, I mean, it, it sounds... I get both sides e or whatever, but like it is the case that a lot of bad actions are being taken so both by the Israeli so government and by a terrorist group that's abducting people off the streets. And and, so and we need to move beyond the framing that it is the U.S. government's obligation to solve law like tensions that like predate civilization. Uh, with American tax dollars. Well, That's the only part to, I have any expertise well, in weighing I, I also don't want to overstate that. I think that there have been many long periods of peaceful coexistence of Arabs, Christians, and Jews in the region. And the issue becomes when there is a state that is established, and I oppose—I'm I'm not a fan of theocracies, whether they be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or whatever—but when there's a state that is established on the basis that it's going to grant special rights and interests to one group of people because of their religious background. And that means, by definition, that it's going to be a two-tiered, hierarchical system of of, of government, of governance, that is going to disadvantage people who are Palestinian, who are Arab, who are Christian, and who are, are Muslim. 
And that is why it has been described by Amnesty International and any number of respected international groups as an apartheid state. And that is the fundamental issue. To say, to say, you know, people have, occupied people have a right to resist as well. Israel has a right to defend itself, but that gets said a million times on TV every single day. What never gets said is that occupied people have a right to exist. And that means violence. And I don't support violence. I agree with Cori Bush and others who have called for peace. But that peace is going to have to be conditioned on the resolution of the underlying conflict that the occupied people have been trying to peacefully protest. There was this peaceful protest that I mentioned in an earlier segment that resulted in them getting um, their Israeli soldiers, soldiers shooting at the feet and hitting some of the protesters. You have uh, nonviolent movements like um, BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, being characterized as terroristic in and of themselves. You have conservatives in this well, country who that. value free speech, making it so that if you support BDS, you aren't able to get a government well, contract sure. in this country. So if all of those peaceful ways are not good enough— Well, the violent ways aren't going to achieve anything other right, than retaliatory this, violence what's on the happen. populace. Well, then there are people who are willing to risk that because that's how they feel about their conditions. And so uh, I, th I do think we have a— clip of Jeremy Corbyn's response. I saw his Twitter response, I think, was one of the best ones that I, I think addressed the underlying issues the best. But let's take a look at what he had to say. Yesterday, I sent out a statement calling for a ceasefire, calling for peace, and calling for an end to the occupation of Palestine, which, of course, is fundamentally the background to the whole issue. Obviously, all attacks are wrong. But do you Actually, condemn I Hamas? I think I've made my point. Well, no, you haven't quite made the point. Lots no, of people. Wait a minute. You, you love interrupting people when they're, asking, when, you're, when they're trying to answer a question, don't you? Now, to say it for the third time, then, yesterday I sent out a statement which made it very clear I wanted peace. And you see the kind of pushback that you get for saying that. Like, the, people are acting as though it's like both sides, you know, uh, why won't you condemn the violence against Israelis? There's no hesitation to, convince, to condemn violence against innocents in, in any way. But when you're seeing in the weight of the coverage and the emphasis on in words like brutality and barbarism, et cetera, and also the complete indifference to when the very same picture that people thought was an Israeli kid in a cage suddenly becomes a Palestinian kid in a cage, all of that umbrage dissipates. But what's and wrong— when you, And when you try to address the underlying concerns, you see, you see the kind of pushback Corbyn got from a pretty neutral statement that says, killing is wrong— Killing violence against civilians is wrong. And to end this violence, we have to address the root causes. Yeah, I, I agree that the indifference to the plight of the Palestinians is wrong and is so is overlooked by our one-sided media constantly. And that should be called out and corrected. I, but I would I would, you know, square I would fix this hypocrisy by calling more attention to the suffering of the Palestinian people, not, like, downplaying the, or saying, oh, you shouldn't say it's barbarous or something. Like, we, we saw the videos of the attacks. They're horrible. They're awful. That's fine. If you're that willing to say thing. that it's also barbaric, the way that Israel, Israel, the government of Israel, has been treating uh, Palestinians. Yeah, I'm perfectly willing to say that. And more We are, on, uh, Robbie, but unfortunately, that yeah. doesn't seem to be the discourse more broadly. Uh, but stick with us. Uh, we'll have more rising for you right after this. 
Members of Congress are cashing in on war, both the war in Ukraine and now the conflict in Israel-Palestine. According to Unusual Wales Politics, which keeps tabs on congressional trades, lawmakers on Capitol Hill have been purchasing war stocks. Both Republicans and Democrats bought General Dynamics stocks, and while Republicans bought more on the energy and oil front, Democrats poured their money into cybersecurity stocks. The heavy wartime stock buying didn't just happen following the onset of the war in Ukraine, but there was a surge that hasn't receded. In August, Mississippi Congressman Michael Guest purchased about $15,000 worth of ExxonMobil stock, currently up and trading at $109 per unusual whales. Numerous politicians from both sides of the aisle are tailoring their investment portfolios based on these defense contractors and energy companies, all of which lobby Capitol Hill heavily. Uh, this is just another reason we really got to ban members of Congress from stock trading, or else um, how can we trust that their foreign policy decision-making, uh, to the extent Congress ex you know, exerts any influence or oversight over the foreign policy perspective to begin with, but th they might be making decisions that are not in the best interest of U.S. foreign policy or the safety of Americans, but are lining their own pockets. Absolutely. I mean, really think this through. If you have a number of Congress members on both sides of the aisle who are heavily invested in, let's say, oil energy stocks, yeah. ExxonMobil, what are the implications of that, not just with respect to our domestic policy, but some of our foreign policy and our immigration policy? I just recorded an episode on my own podcast that uh, aired today where I talked to an expert about the uh, influx of Venezuelan immigrants and the relationship between U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and the economic conditions in that country that are leading so many people to want to flee. And, of course, the oil sector was uh, Venezuela's biggest export. Um, our sanctions have made it unable for them, made it uh, difficult for them to export any oil. They have to import U.S. oil, usually to mix in with their own to make it suitable for export. They aren't able to import parts to fix the uh, technology required to extract their own oil. And other countries that might be willing to trade with them have been threatened from doing so, the U.S. government has said in no uncertain terms, it's either us or them. Do you want to give up that market or do you want to give us up as a, uh, give us up as a trading partner? Now, if you personally, as someone who benefits from the dominance of U.S. oil, also benefit from sanctions on Ukraine, there are more than one largely conservatives in Congress who are sitting here wanting to weaponize and politicize a crisis that they are profiting from and continuing these sanctions on Venezuela so that they can personally benefit. And this is just a very, a very small wedge of what can be happening here. Right. And again, that's serving their interests, not serving the interests of the American people. Yeah. How the American people, Republican, Democrat, Independent, speak with one voice on wanting gas prices to be lower. We should, we should be, we should be buying oil from Venezuela. We should be buying oil wherever it is. We'd be less um, reliant on this cluster F in the Middle East um, if we had other places to procure oil from. So, yeah, this is, and this is, you know, politicians in both parties are often backwards on this for various reasons. But it's like I'm not about forcing us to have some industrial base of oil or anything else in the U.S. Again, that's what the political figures want because they're yeah. benefiting from it. But the American people just want access to cheaper gas. And that involves, you know, I'm a, I'm a ruthless free market person. I would let, a, we can buy it from, uh, from Venezuelans, that's fine. Uh, the U.S. government is making that difficult, it is making it illegal in some in, in situations to benefit Members of Congress who have stock in oil companies. Yeah, and so that's 
been an interesting piece of the ongoing drama with Matt Gates in the House, which is that uh, Ro Khanna proposed a series of reforms um, at the end of last week, I think it was maybe last Wednesday, um, that Matt Gates seems to be open to. He followed up saying, OK, let's negotiate. And one of those reforms included a ban on Congress members from trading stocks or forever from ever becoming lobbyists. Um, some other parts of that five-point plan, including banning money from lobbyists and political action committees to congressional candidates, term limits for Congress, term limits for Supreme Court justices, and an ethics code for Supreme Court justices. And so you're really seeing from this force the vote moment with Matt Gates a willingness to bring some of these really important issues to the table that have all of these broad consequences. But the, I, the, the truth is that it's still a a narrow slice of electeds, people like Matt Gates, Rokana, who has often been out of step with his own yeah. party on these issues as well, who are willing to go here and actually do something about it, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of Americans do not want their Congress members to be profiting off of stocks that have serious implications for both foreign and domestic policy. And look how Matt Gates is being treated by the the mainstream commentary, even some conservative commentators, as as, yes, an most of them. as in the way, as yeah. inconvenient, as crazy that he's done something totally insane and unprecedented. Um, in order to advance policies, some of the policies, I, I don't agree with every policy he's probably trying to get um, achieved everywhere, but mostly he's making a stand about funding for Ukraine that is clearly popular. That's what Republicans actually want. It's what they want their leaders to do, is to rein in some of this spending for every other nation on Earth. And he took a stand on that, and he wants to stop on, on the on the— the, the, the stock front, something that you could pull Americans, it's just overwhelmingly Absolutely. popular. That's what they want. And he's being treated like he's a, a procedurally crazy person yes. for trying to get those policies. Uh, right, right, like right now they're saying he's in the way of sending even more money abroad to Israel. And isn't it horrible what he did? Like Again, I could be wrong. I don't think the American people think that's so crazy to yeah, yeah. take a minute and wait and think. And like, we don't have to rush our own political process because there was some crisis somewhere else. It doesn't mean we're not sympathetic. That doesn't mean we're not going to condemn horrible violence and illegal actions and all of that. Doesn't mean our leaders don't have to be concerned about it. But we don't need to. We, we don't need to, you know, rush um, a, a political process because Americans here they care about what's going on here. Matt Gates called out corruption on the floor of the House. And he was booed. Yeah. He was booed by his own Congress. I mean— Well, they hate the guy. That, that's what happened. And they but love specifically, corruption. Exactly. Yeah. He, he stood there, and he, he called out corruption. And they had the audacity to boo. And then the mainstream media covers that as, oh, they're booing McCarthy. The sh uh, sorry, they're booing Matt Gates. They know that Matt Gates is unpopular. Uh, he, this, he's, he's a crazy man. But I think what the public sees is one person willing to stick his head up and say, actually, corruption is bad. Actually, Congress members shouldn't trade stocks. Actually, they shouldn't be war profiteers. Right. And they saw on national television his colleagues booing him for taking that stand that is so strongly aligned with the interests of the American public and the opinions of the American public. So I'm very interested to see where this goes. And I am afraid, but interested to see what ends up happening um, with the support congressionally for increasing aid to Israel as people increasingly draw comparisons between the stance on Ukraine aid and Israel aid. And we should just always be suspicious of pundits who are going to say, oh, this is so embarrassing, this is so dysfunctional, what's going on in the House, what Republicans, what Matt Gates and the other insurgents are doing. So embarrassing, so unprecedented. It's, okay, but what is precedented is not necessarily good, is not necessarily what the American people want. Like, 
a lot of people will say the way our government works is dysfunctional for them, is not serving their interests, and is not accomplishing the things that they want. So this is not business as usual. Yes, this was very abnormal, fine, but a lot of people want abnormal because what is normal is not is not what they're vote is not what they say they're voting for. Yeah. They're annoyed that they keep voting for they keep being clear about their preferences and not getting what they've asked 100%, 100%. for. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. But oh no, the optics of it's so bad. Yeah, you so don't need me to say Princeton study again. It's going to be the first time this week, or probably about fifteen more times. But that 2014 Princeton study that shows there's no relationship between what Congress members. Uh, vote for, uh, what they put forward from a legislative perspective, and what the average American wants. It's, it's, it's screaming loud today uh, as there is this disinterest in Congress members literally buying war stocks. Yeah, please don't. More rising right after this. Cheryl, for that beautiful introduction and for uh, for making me the happiest person, man alive, the most unbelievable wife. I want to thank the other members of my family who are here, particularly Amaryllis, who's done such a great job co-managing the campaign. And my son Bobby and, uh, and Jackie and, uh, and Becky and, and, uh, um, and Anthony Shriver and uh, Carolina and Eunice and Chessie Shriver and, and the other members of my family are here. Um, boy, Cheryl is a huge, huge football fan. And the real reason we came to Philadelphia is to watch the Eagles play yesterday. I want, to, uh, I want to thank also Louis Grassrope for giving the invocation today. Louis, as he said, is a tribal elder of the Lower Brule Sioux. Um, the Lakota people in South Dakota, my father, on about a week So what we're watching there is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announcing a run as an independent candidate, leaving the Democratic Party. He hasn't literally said those words yet. Uh, I think we'll bring him back on screen uh, when that happens. He's doing some introduction, thanking some people. His wife was just speaking. But uh, he is running as an independent outside the Democratic Party. Uh, something uh, we, we were waiting for this is, I think, kind of expectation that this would be the move he would make was building over the last couple weeks. But here it is. Yeah, so there is some recent reporting from Semaphore. And we talked about some of this polling evidence uh, last week that suggests that RFK Jr. might, in fact, take more votes away from Donald Trump than from Joe Biden. Uh, and that poll suggested that uh, if he run, if someone is to run as an independent, they have a huge polling advantage over someone who runs as a Libertarian or a Green Party member. And that's some of the speculation as to why Cornel West also has chosen to no longer affiliate himself with the Green Party. But on top of all of that, perhaps because of that polling information, there's some new reporting out of Semaphore that suggests that Trump's team is getting anxious about what it means for RFK Jr. to be making this announcement. This article, uh, updated a few days ago by Shelby Talcott, is titled, Team Trump Ready's Attacks on RFK Jr. as Spoiler Anxiety Grows. I haven't had a chance to talk about this with you yet, Robbie. What do you make of this choice? Boo-hoo. I mean, I say that <laughs> to both major party candidates, all major party candidates. Um, 
I don't care about the spoiler effect at all. If you want to win these voters, you can have less bad ideas. So I, I didn't, I wasn't losing any sleep over the fact that maybe RFK Jr. was going to draw, if, if he ran as a general election candidate, was going to draw support from Joe Biden. Same thing as Trump. Honestly, in reality, I bet he's, he's going to pull voters from both camps, and he's going to pull uh, voters uh, who wouldn't have voted, who would not vote for anyone except for RFK Jr. So let, you know, everybody should temper their panic that he's going to cause their candidate to lose, as, you know, as generally the case, that way too much has been made about Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, Green Party, Libertarian Party, spoiler effect. So it, it remains to be seen. But it, it is clear that he's speaking to issues that are of concern on COVID, et, et cetera, to some right-wing people. So I'm, I'm sure some people who might have voted for Trump could be interested in voting for him as well, if that's a big enough effect to sabotage Trump or or Biden I, I, remains to be seen. Well, it looks like we're getting into the core of RFK Jr.'s announcement, so let's go back over to him. Tens of millions of people who live paycheck to paycheck in financial desperation. The dispossessed also include the legions of the chronically ill, of the addicted, the depressed, the 80% of our country that cannot afford a middle-class lifestyle. A rising tide of discontent is now swamping our country. There's danger in this discontent, but there's also opportunity and promise. The danger is that the, democrat, the demagogues will hijack it toward fascism, or that our rulers would divert us to use it as a pretense for an attack on an existential enemy and another in the long pipelines of continuous wars. But the biggest danger that we've all seen on a day-to-day -day basis is that they'll direct that discontent against each other. As Abraham Lincoln observed, quoting Jesus Christ, a house divided cannot stand. A polarized nation is easy for corrupt powers to manipulate and to control and to strip the wealth, its freedoms, its equity, its dignity. Those are the dangers. So what is the promise? The promise is of reunion. We are told today that our nation is hopelessly divided. But I found something different as I travel this country. The most hateful voices, of course, are always the loudest. But there are a lot of quiet Americans who are looking at disgust with, at the vitriol, the name calling, and the venom. They want it to end. They, they want us to get along. They want to end. And you know, those, those loud, hateful So it's interesting that this is happening with the backdrop of this uh, escalation of the Israeli Palestinian conflict, the, um, the attacks, the deaths um, in Israel, and then also in Palestine. Uh, RFK Jr. has made a name for himself so far as, a, as an anti-interventionist candidate, um, speaking very eloquently about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how the U.S. has escalated it and should not be funding the Ukrainian effort. This is um, something that has made him, I think, not so appealing of a candidate to your kind of standard liberal Democrat, but certainly an appealing candidate to many on the right, the dissident right, um, uh, for whom uh, opposition to funding Ukraine has become a big issue. And he was getting a lot of pickup there, and that's why uh, some of the Trump people are worried about his entry. Uh, however,
However, as, as has emerged when he's been questioned by you and others uh, for his views on Israel, uh, he's been very full-throated in his desire for the U.S. to support Israel, to maintain that, uh, what he views as a very important relationship. And he has said that, um, that the U.S. should continue and increase aid to Israel in light of what's going on, something that has estranged him from the Libertarian Party, which previously had tweeted or spoke out a lot of support for the things he was saying about interventions in general and about COVID and, and vaccine requirements. Mm -hmm. um, he has been stridently criticized by the Libertarian Party um, for this. Um, he has some stances that I would describe as not libertarian, so it was going to be interesting to see if the party would be willing to overlook those and say, but here's a well-known person we can attach our name to who is speaking to at least some of our issues. Um, this is definitely, go this sounds like this would, this is a bridge too far, so he's going to be running here as an independent, not as a libertarian. Yeah, I do think that there was some question as to whether or not this announcement was going to be an announcement that he was invited to join the libertarian party. Right up to, I think, this tweet that came out over the weekend. And, uh, from the Libertarian Party's Twitter account, in response to RFK Jr.'s statement on uh, Israel-Palestine, the Libertarian Party tweeted out, we are the only ones who are actually anti-war in every context, not just when it's convenient. All of the disenfranchised anti-war supporters of Robert Kennedy Jr. are welcome in the Libertarian Party. So making a pretty definitive break there um, with RFK Jr.'s candidacy on what I think is a really core motivating issue for a lot of voters. Right. I mean, you have to be consistently anti-intervention or, you know, or what's what's the point? I mean, so many—this is the problem with our two-party duopoly, our major parties. They're both are inconsistently anti-intervention and have been for forever, you know, condemning one thing that uh, the U.S. government is doing, perhaps under the influence of the other party, but then having your own desire to project, you know, American influence um, when your side's in power or just, you know, in different conflicts, Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East, et cetera. Um, what so many Americans want is a, is a principled and consistent yeah. um, anti-interventionist perspective, which doesn't mean that we, like— totally turn a blind eye to atrocities going on over the world, or that we can never speak out against them or work to counteract them, but that we have to have a sense of humility about what the American foreign policy over the last several decades has achieved, the reality that we, we cannot be the world police, we cannot intervene every time something goes wrong anywhere in the world, and that a lot of what we ha have done has invited um, hostility and dislike and distrust of America. And I think the people are clear-eyed about that in a way their political leaders have not been. So I was very glad to see um, the Libertarian Party, of which, of course, I am a member, <laughs> often voting for our candidate, to, um, to come out and say that. Yeah, let's get back to a little bit more of RFK Jr.'s remarks. And I've read stories to children who are devastated by chronic disease. It can all look pretty dark. We seem to be cycling from despair to rage and back to despair again. The country is sitting aside on top now of a powder keg. Americans are angry at being left out, left behind, swindled, cheated, and belittled by a smug elite that has rigged the system in its favor. But 
I've also seen hope. I've traveled millions of American miles across my career. And to quote Tennyson, I am part of all whom I have met. For 40 years, Americans across the country have fortified me with their courage and their idealism. But this year, I have witnessed an upwelling of optimism that I've never seen before. And optimism isn't the same thing as denial. We have to acknowledge the truth. We do face a decaying infrastructure and record, record levels of suicide, depression, addiction, chronic disease. We do face an entrenched political corruption and an inequality of wealth not seen in a century. But the good news is that people like yourselves are finally fed up. Something, something is stirring in us that says it doesn't have to be this way. People stop me everywhere at airports, at hotels and malls on the street, and they remind me that this country is ready for a history-making change. They're ready they are ready to reclaim their freedom, their independence. And, and that's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. for President of the United States. But that's not all. I'm here to join you in making a new Declaration of Independence for our entire nation. We declare independence. Well, we will be updating you more on this tomorrow, of course. And that does it for us for today. It was really great to be back at the desk. Brianna and I will be here tomorrow. I'm no more, no more long vacations for me, probably in the rest of my lifetime. But I do appreciate everyone um, who filled in while I was in uh, Rome and some other places. Um, obviously, a lot going on in the news. We'll, we'll definitely have more discussion of, more expert commentary on the Israeli-Palestinian situation and everything else. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go. We are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, take care. Bye-bye.